through the first verse of chapter 11. So it's a lengthy section. We just wrapped up chapter 8, and it's dealing with this matter of liberties, Christian liberties, the exercise of Christian liberties, the constraint of Christian liberties, and how we are to act toward one another in the body of Christ and in the public domain as it relates to the things that we are free to do, uh, having been saved and bought with a price and freed from the power of sin, freed from the penalty of sin, these things. But when you think about the, the idea or the concept of freedom or liberty, it is indeed a distinctly or uniquely American concept as well. And I think that uh, in light of the subject matter that we've already covered and where we're going to be going in particular in uh, chapter 9, it might be helpful for us to think a little bit uh, more broadly about this uh, as we're a part of and have most of us, I would assume, grown up in sort of the American ethos around these matters. The fact is, is our nation is a nation founded upon the principle of rights. We have rights that are ours, divinely bestowed rights, we would say. And these are innate. They're the innate possession of every human being, in fact. And so because they are divinely bestowed and they are the innate possession of every human being, then certainly they are the innate possession of a citizen of this country. The familiar words uh, from the Declaration of Independence, you probably had to memorize them at one point in your life. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And of course, the Declaration doesn't end there with that statement about the source of our liberties or our rights or the characterization or nature of these divinely bestowed rights, but it goes on to describe how these rights are to be insured or protected. It says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So you even have this statement, this broad and sweeping statement about the nature of protecting our rights, our inalienable rights, that it is the function of good government to do that. And when government fails to do that, it is the prerogative of a people to abolish that form of government and institute a new form of government that will then secure those divinely bestowed and alienable rights, namely life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As you think about just those statements from the Declaration of Independence, do any of you see the glaring problems resident in these words? I'm not here to institute a revolution. I'm not here to be subversive to 
the founding fathers or the founding documents. But I do think it promotes or it provokes some serious questions for us to consider. When we think about the nature of rights, the Apostle Paul in chapter 9 is going to go to this matter of rights. He's going to talk about his rights in particular. And we think about exercising our liberties, it is all within the frame of we have a right to these liberties. That's the ethos. That's the mindset. That's what's been enshrined in our founding documents. But there are glaring problems here for us individually and for us societally. For example, what is life? What is life? This question has to be clearly answered before the right to it can be claimed and then protected by a good government. What is life? What, if any, are there any boundaries on liberty? Liberty can be just about anything if you want it to be. Are there any constraints on that? How do we define it? How do we understand this inalienable right of liberty that we possess by divine will? And what about the, a nation? How can, the other thing is, how can a nation be peacefully... In, how, how can we, as, as a bunch of individuals in a nation, I should say peacefully and equitably pursue these rights without inevitably crashing into one another in our pursuits and thereby diminishing someone else's divinely endowed right to pursue these things themselves. How do we do this? What about this notion of the consent of the governed? Anyone see any potential problems there? The founders actually saw the problems. They saw the pitfalls with this very clearly. There's innumerable examples of this you can read. Some of them you probably have, maybe many of them if you're a student of history. But a few examples for you. George Washington in his first inaugural address said this. There is no truth more thoroughly established than that there exists in the economy and course of nature an indissoluble union between virtue and happiness, between duty and advantage, between the genuine maxims of an honest and magnanimous policy and the solid rewards of public prosperity and felicity." Since we ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected of a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. And since the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the republic model of government are justly considered as deeply, perhaps as finely staked, on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. So George Washington recognized that virtue 
is of paramount importance. Not just a certain form of government, but virtue amongst people to be able to secure genuine happiness, to be able to pursue these inalienable rights, to be able to protect liberty. John Adams, when he was president, in a letter that he wrote to the Massachusetts militia, said this, We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. He saw the problems and the pitfalls. Even Benjamin Franklin, who was not notoriously virtuous in all of his history and life, said this, Only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become more corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. George Washington, in his final farewell address, we heard from his inaugural address, in his final farewell address to the nation, he said, it is substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. The rule, indeed, extends with more or less force to every species of free government. Who that is a sincere friend to it can look with indifference upon attempts to shake the foundation of the fabric. He went on to say later in in that address, he says, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. How are we doing, Americans? Here's the sad reality that I'm sure has already settled in on you prior to this, to hearing of these quotes, I'm sure, as you've thought through these matters. But when conceptions of individual rights become detached from divine truth, they become detached from ultimate reality. And when societies writ large, become detached from ultimate reality, subjective incoherence becomes codified into law, and societal chaos is normalized. Since societal chaos is unsustainable, I would add, 
some form of tyranny necessarily emerges to reestablish order. Of course, it's an order as defined by said tyrant. I am no conspiracy theorist by hobby or by trade. However, I think that the proverbial tea leaves are apparent. We're living in a day and time in which, and have been for some time now, in which morality has been foolishly detached from religion, more importantly, foolishly detached from revelation, from, from what God says is moral or immoral. We've therefore created a societal morality all our own. It is detached, therefore, not just from ancient and naive notions of religious mysticism in an age now where we are scientific and advanced and have evolved to the degree that we have. We don't need those relics of religious belief to guide us. We now have ascended to a place where we can define our morals according to science and technology and the whims of society as it goes. But what no one really recognizes who are advocates of this kind of detachment is that we have detached ourselves from ultimate reality. Like, like we're a society in many, many respects that is adrift. And so, as I'm sure you do, and I'm sure I do from time to time, become exacerbated, perplexed, frustrated with everything you see going on, and you, you ask yourself the question, how could we possibly do this? How could they possibly advocate for that? How could we possibly pass that kind of law? It, it, it's like, well, the answer is, is that we're detached from reality. We're, we're adrift, societally, nationally, from these founding moorings. The recent passing of, in the Senate of the so-called Respect for Marriage Act is an interesting example of some of this detachment. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said on the floor, passing this bill is our chance to send a message to Americans everywhere. Listen to the detachment. No matter who you are, Who you love, you deserve dignity and equal protection under the law. That's about as American an ideal as it comes. No matter who you are, no matter who you love, that should be protected. That is an utter detachment from reality. Does it matter who you are and who you love as to whether or not we should codify into law protection for you? Certainly, he doesn't mean this. We know this is just politics, but, but the problem is, is that 
This stands as precedent that adds to the chaos and the detachment reality. Senator Elizabeth Warren said, relative to this imminent passing of this Respect for Marriage Act, she said, I want to see the day when we have 100 votes in favor of no discrimination, not just for who we love, but also in any activity. And then President Biden, knowing that it was going to pass, said this, the United States is on the brink of reaffirming a fundamental truth. Love is love. And Americans should have the right to marry the person they love. So here we are, this week, seeing the codification of incoherence, of detachment from reality, which is sourced in a detachment from God himself. It, it gets worse. In an article from the Heritage Foundation by Sarah Parshall Perry, entitled, Federal, Federal Court Ruling on Gender Identity Upends Civil Rights Law, listen to how far we can go with this as a nation. Just remember that my, my responsibility here is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So as I'm going through this, keep that in mind. This is not to provoke your conscience around, you know, election voting. This is not to give you some kind of lesson on history or recent judicial precedent. This is so that we can be equipped for ministry. In a shocking and first-of-its-kind reading of a more than 30-year-old disability law, a federal judge ruled that distress that results from a person feeling that he or she is the wrong sex is a disability that must be accommodated under the Americans with Disabilities Act. If the opinion is left to stand, it would open the door for those who consider themselves transgender and feel clinically distressed to receive public accommodations in bathrooms, locker rooms, prisons, same-sex housing, and more. U.S. Circuit Judge Diana Gribben-Motz of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals wrote the majority opinion for the divided three-judge panel in Williams v. Kincaid, holding that under the Americans with Disabilities Act, gender dysphoria is a disability. Judge Pamela Harris joined Mott's opinion to form the majority. The American with Disabilities Act is a civil rights law that prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities in all areas of public life, including employment, education, transportation, and in places that are open to the general public namely public accommodations. So, what is the practical impact of this decision? It means that those with gender dysphoria, quote, an incongruence between someone's gender identity and assigned sex, end quote, 
that results in, quote, clinically significant distress, end quote, as the American Psychiatric Association defines it, remember last week with Joel Teague, if you were here, are not only protected from discrimination because of that so-called disability, but they are entitled to reasonable accommodations for it. In the case of former Fairfax County, Virginia prisoner Keisha Williams, that a reasonable accommodation should have, according to the court, included sending Williams, a biological male, back into the women's prison. Williams had filed a disability discrimination claim against various prison employees alleging mistreatment while incarcerated. However, in order to reach its conclusion, the majority had to clear one very big hurdle. The language of the American with Disabilities Act itself, which explicitly says, quote, homosexuality and bisexuality for the purposes of the definition of disability in section 12102 parentheses 2 of this title, homosexuality and bisexuality are not impairments as such and are not disabilities under this chapter. Certain conditions under this chapter, the term disability shall not include transvestism, transsexualism, pedophilia, exhibitionalism, voyeurism, gender identity disorders, not resulting from physical impairments or other sexual behavior disorders. The judge ruled against a law to basically set a precedent to change a law so that we can pursue this course of complete disassociation from reality. And to memorialize in law complete subjective incoherence that leads to chaos. Because the statute clearly eliminates disability protections for gender identity disorder, Mott's engaged in a a contorted legal analysis to determine that gender dysphoria was not actually a gender, gender identity disorder. To reach that conclusion, she did not look to the statute's language at the time of its enactment, but to a much more recent change on gender-related psychiatric diagnoses, one not envisioned, anticipated, or incorporated by the ADA's original drafters in 1990. Mott's relied heavily on a change made by the American Psychiatric Association in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, 5th edition. That's what Joel was talking about last week. The DSM-5 is the standard classification of mental disorders used by mental health professionals in the United States. At that time, the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, replaced gender identity disorder with gender dysphoria. Because the change focused the diagnosis on the distress that some people who consider themselves transgender experience and for which they may seek psychiatric, medical, and surgical treatments, instead of on a desire to be a gender other than the one they were born to, Mott's determined, the judge determined, that such a change was good enough to stretch the ADA well beyond the limits of what Congress determined it to originally bear. And here's what she wrote. In sum, the APA, the American Psychiatric Association's removal of the gender identity disorder diagnosis and the addition of the gender dysphoria diagnosis to the DSM-5 reflected a significant shift in medical understanding. It's not medical. We're talking about someone who feels distressed. 
But a judge is employing this manual to rewrite law. The obsolete diagnosis, she goes on, focused solely on cross-gender identification. The modern one, on clinically significant distress, put simply, while the older DSM pathologized the very existence of transgender people, the recent DSM-5's diagnosis of gender dysphoria takes as a given that being transgender is not a disability and affirms that a transgender person's medical needs are just as deserving of treatment and protection as anyone else's. So now here's what's happening. Someone who is profoundly confused to put it mildly, who has had that confusion given a place of distinction and honor and normalization, who is now able to foster the same kind of reaffirmation of such confusion through largely the means of technology in forging community around this kind of confusion... Our legal system is putting in place protections that will allow someone who is persisting in this kind of confusion, we'll call it, to have special accommodations because they feel distressed about their confusion and what it manifests in society and how other people might treat them. So, restrooms, prisons, other public places. And and this is what I mean by it is codifying chaos. This will create chaos in society. It already is. But, but the trajectory isn't looking good at all. It's not looking good. The author of this article goes on, In sum, if you're distressed about being transgender, then you're entitled to all the accommodations you'd like in public life, whether in bathrooms, locker rooms, prisons, or same-sex housing. The illogical conclusion, of course is that transgender individuals who might be perfectly at ease with their underlying biological sex are not entitled to accommodations at all. As to how this will play out in modern America, one thing is for sure, it will be messy. And that's putting it mildly. This is leading to, as you already know, a complete redefinition of all fundamental terms that used to be associated with reality. Marriage is one that's on the table, right? I mean, we're we're redefining that. We already have. We're redefining it over and over again. We'll redefine it probably until we're we're okay with pedophilia and we'll codify that. I mean, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. I'm saying the doors are being opened. It's getting really ugly out there. And so we are, we are a nation now who can latch on to our own declaration of independence and find justification for this course. 
This is me pursuing liberty. It's me pursuing my life and my right to happiness. This is what this is. This was endowed to me. I'm constitutionally endowed to pursue these things, you could argue. By the way, if I continue to gain influence in the major institutions of our nation and influence amongst large swaths of the American population, then I'll have the consent of the governed on my side and we'll just continue to rewrite everything, recodify everything. And we as believers in the midst of all this should feel a sense of righteous indignation at what we see going on around us. And I'm looking out at you and I'm seeing the looks on your faces and I, I'm, you may be thinking, why is he doing this to us? This is not nice. <clears throat> and I agree, it's, it's, not, it's not fun to sort of consider where we are as a nation right now. But we've said, I've said many, many times before, it would be such a grave error on our part if in the face of such massive shifts and changes, we began to appeal to the wrong sources of authority to quote-unquote, turn things around. I think that what we need to consider carefully, if we haven't already, is that this is just the beginning. We should not, as God's people, and we cannot, as people of the book, justify some overreached notions of the manifest destiny of the United States of America. I can grant kind and amazing providences at the founding of this country and all along the way. I would not argue any of that. But this idea that we are God's protected city on a hill for the nations... Some would argue that we are in the midst of judgment right now. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure how to... I'm not sure I can know that or we can know that definitely and definitively. certainly indications of that. But the question is, do we respond with a counter movement demanding our rights? I mean, certainly there are innate threats to religious liberty that people are talking about and writing about, particularly with this recent Protection of Marriage Act. I mean, I'm just using the name, not because I think that's what it is, but that's what they call it, the Protection of Marriage Act. They, they, people are articulating concerns about threats to religious liberty that are, you know, imminent, just a matter of time, where protected inst- institutions and entities... Uh, will no longer have such protections. You know, might we as a church be facing the removal of our 501c3 status, our nonprofit status? Will it be the kind of thing where we are undermined in ways that are not so overt and direct, but they're, they're certainly effective? I think that when we think about this notion of rights, 
And when we consider what I've put in front of you already this morning, it could be easy for us, especially if we are consumers of any kind of public discourse, if we're you know, watching news, if we're reading you know, news, listening to podcasts that are talking about these things, it could be easy for us to get sucked into patterns of thinking that are oriented around counter-movements. We must, we must stem this tide. I'm, again, I've said this before. I'm all in, on board. We vote and we, we, we speak the truth in the public sphere. We, we do all of these things. I'm, I'm not saying we just curl up in a, in a ball in a corner and just take what we, we need to take. But the concern is that we will allow these kinds of provocations and even legitimate quote-unquote threats to affect our thinking such that we are rendered ineffective as God's people, and in particular within the body of Christ. And so when you come to this discussion about rights in a world where abortion is now cast as reproductive rights and this lawsuit that I just mentioned is oriented toward granting special Americans with disabilities rights to a transgender inmate of a prison. It would seem to me that we could get askew even just in reaction in our own hearts to this assault on truth. If we understand and we truly are convinced that rights come from God... And the appropriate exercise of those rights cannot be detached from truth. To the extent that they are detached from truth, that does not lead to life and liberty and happiness. It only leads to chaos. Then we need to have our minds oriented around God's word and the gospel and the truth so that we can function effectively, not just function minimally, but thrive in the midst of this day and time. The light shines the brightest when it's darkest all around. So we want to be a people and even a local fellowship that... Everything around us can be as dark as it's ever been, and we are shining all the more brightly as we stand on the truth. As we've looked at the Apostle Paul's teaching on this matter of rights, freedoms, even freedoms and rights that are based upon truth, we've noted that the Apostle Paul is properly oriented around truth as the governing reality for the exercise of rights. But not just truth about doctrine or theology, but truth about who we are as God's people gathered in the life of the church. As we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, get my Bible... Sorry.
We noted at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, after the Apostle Paul is teaching on this matter of showing deference to a brother or sister who is provoked by the partaking of food sacrificed to idols, he says in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. The Apostle Paul gives us this clear indication that our rights and the exercise of them must be attached to ultimate reality, which is to be attached to ultimate truth. Not just a claim of a right that is ours by fiat. He goes on then in chapter 9 to begin to illustrate this from his own life, his own identity even as an apostle. Note what he says there in the first few verses. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. In these few verses, the Apostle Paul is introducing really himself as an illustration of one who actually has rights. One who actually, if anyone has rights and freedoms, it is him. You'll note he makes this reference to his own freedom that is highlighted or emphasized by the fact that he is not just a fellow believer, but he's actually an apostle. That that he is one who has actually seen Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. He's hearkening back to his calling in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road, where the risen Lord actually called him to salvation and ultimately appointed him to be an apostle to the Corinthians. And so, for one who is called to this quote-unquote elite status, him, among all believers in Corinth, are free. He, as an apostle, should be identified as one who fully understands his rights that are his in Christ Jesus. He then pursues a thoroughgoing defense and articulation of all these rights that are his, and we'll enumerate enumerate those as we work through this chapter. Some would say that this chapter focuses at the beginning primarily on Paul's defense of his ministry. That, That somehow the Apostle Paul's actual ministry and apostleship was directly under attack by the Corinthians and being called into question. And, and he begins to defend himself against those attacks. But I don't think that that's necessarily the thrust of this passage. I think that he's holding this up to say, me of all people understand my rights and my freedoms based upon the fact that I was called by Christ himself. I was sent to you by Christ himself. I was given this message of the gospel that is the reason why you even exist as God's people now here in Corinth. I of all people understand this. And he pursues this this line of, of discourse and defense of this particular kind of status, not to not to, to call out those who are questioning his apostleship, but to continue to elevate himself as one who of all people has rights 
so that he can then turn the corner and do what one commentator said in this chapter. Most of the chapter is dedicated to an exposition of Paul's own practice as an example of a gospel-centered approach to one's rights. That he's not, he's not holding himself up as someone to be given special privilege because he has these legitimate rights. He's holding himself up as an apostle and having these rights to let everyone realize that he has subjected himself and denied himself these rights for the sake of the gospel. In verse 15, for example... He says, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. This is the Apostle Paul coming before a body of believers in Corinth, several of which who were claiming to have the right to exercise certain freedoms and liberties, even to the ignoring of the the weak consciences of weaker brothers and sisters, to not loving them properly, He's holding himself up as an example of one who has rights himself, but who is more concerned about the gospel. And when we consider the air that we breathe in our nation and this whole discussion about rights and the assault of religious rights and the advancement of these completely detached from reality, newly codified rights for people that can't possibly understand what it means to have these kinds of rights and to exercise them in good faith and good conscience for the betterment of society as a whole. We have to come back to this principle. We cannot allow ourselves to have the the air of the culture seep in in such a way that we can't come back to this understanding that in Christ, we give up our rights willingly if that's what's called upon us to advance the gospel. In other words, what we're going to find when we unpack this discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is that this whole matter of rights as believers, as freedoms that are ours because we have been freed from the penalty of sin and freed from the power of sin legitimately and truly, that we do have liberties and rights that are ours to exercise, that we are more inclined to deny ourselves those rights, to freely set aside those rights because we are governed by something that is transcendent and eternal. In other words, we are connecting rightly attaching our understanding and operation of rights to ultimate reality, to ultimate truth. One of the great challenges for, I think, Christians and churches in our current day is navigating this effectively. I know that you've probably heard me kind of say this over and over again. 
But we are not entitled to a moral society that upholds our values. We're not. We, we, we are not promised freedoms that enshrine our religious liberty from here until eternity. We're not. In fact, as God's people, we're given example after example, not the least of which is the example of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that the orientation of the believer is to be willing to lay down our rights if the cause of the gospel, the advancement of the gospel, is in play. Willingly. Gladly. You recall last time when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, or actually we advanced a little bit to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to bring out an example where if you're in the marketplace and your conscience is provoked by the presence of food sacrificed to idols, so you're in the marketplace and there's immorality around you, there's perceived immoral product or service around you, it's provoking your conscience, that, that the, the believer in that setting is not to make a big conscience statement to everybody around saying, this is immoral, this is sinful. Because we don't know who might be looking on. We don't want to have a muddled testimony amongst the watching world that says, you know what, being a good Christian, being saved by grace means that you reject that act and you reject that thing and you reject that product. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we all come before God wretched and wicked just like the rest. And by His grace, we have been pulled up out of a pit of despair and sin and saved by grace and by grace alone. That's the gospel. If our consciences are so easily offended by the immorality around us that we find ourselves in the public square speaking out against immorality, and that's the mantra, and that becomes how we're identified, the gospel's lost in all of that. We've held ourselves up as ones who have achieved some kind of morality that no one else has achieved, and our objective is to pull you up to where we are. Here the Apostle Paul will go on to talk about how he has become all things to all people so that in all means, by all means, he might save some. We must be a people who are clear-headed, clear-minded about the nature of our rights and the proper exercise of them, but more prominently the, willing setting, the willingly setting aside of them for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of another's conscience, and certainly for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. So as we get into this section and this study of the Apostle Paul, we will talk about what it means to actually be an apostle. We will talk about the defense of being compensated for work in the gospel. We will unpack all of these principles that he, he uses to make his case for why he is indeed free and why being an apostle does grant to him rights certainly equivalent to those who are the believers that he's ministering to. But what we'll also note over and over again is that he's holding these rights up. He's claiming these rights as a rhetorical way to say, these are the things that I willingly set aside even though they were mine. 
because I will do anything for the sake of the gospel because I want others to share in its blessings, he would say. We are living in a day and time, as you know, and as we've already alluded to, where faithfulness to the Word of God, clarity about what faithfulness to the Word of God actually means, deep conviction around that is going to be needed by God's people in significant ways. I think that we should use all the means at our disposal to protect ourselves and to exercise civil uh, rights and to be engaged in the political process to the extent that we can. I, I think that we should be a part of all of that. But the challenge for us always is that we begin to look to something other than God and God alone and the message of the gospel as the remedy for all that we're experiencing around us. And we begin to convey to a watching world that it is some political party that we're looking to for salvation of the nation. And we're, we're not a light at that point. So as we move through this text, I'm going to encourage all of us to be thinking carefully about what it means for you and I. God has providentially placed us at a day and time and a point in history where it seems as though, I don't know what the extent of it's going to be. I don't, I'm, again, I am not a big prognosticator here, but it seems like the things that this nation has been characterized by and the protections and freedoms that many people of faith have enjoyed and operated in and even slovenly operated in for decades are eroding before our eyes. And we are being thrust headlong into Corinth, all of us. The good news is that there's nothing new under the sun. The even better news is that God's in charge of all of this. But the question is, how are we going to respond faithfully? Particularly when we think about what rights we possess and how we need to advance those rights versus lay them aside. Particularly when it comes to the message of the gospel and life in the body of Christ. We'll get more into this study as we move forward. I pray that we'll have a, a great time together as we unpack this and continue to pray for all of us as we walk through some of these matters together. Let's pray.